morning. Uh, today's reading is from John verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everything, to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is God's word. I invite you to keep your Bibles open as we spend some time together looking at this incredible passage of Scripture uh, with the joy of Christ still in our hearts from having worshipped Him in such a beautiful way. Let's pray together as we look at, at this text. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that we have something to celebrate this Christmas. And it's not just family, it's not just friends, it's certainly not just presents. We have hope. We have light in a very dark world. And God, that is worth celebrating. And so we pray as we look into your word this morning, we would see you and hear your voice, God. Give us ears to hear uh, what your spirit is saying to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if this year is anything like last year, in just a few days, over 100 million people in the United States will take a journey of 50 miles or more to celebrate the holidays with family and friends, what is for many uh, an annual pilgrimage. Uh, we did this every year growing up. Uh, we would load up the our sky blue Pontiac Le Mans station wagon and uh, head out for the sand hills of Nebraska on what our parents told us was a five Sesame Street trip to get to Grandma and Grandpa's. It was their way of explaining to us how long it was going to take. Same amount of time as watching Sesame Street five times. Of course, we didn't have DVD players or tablets to actually watch it on the road, but you get the point. And, and we made this journey every year religiously. Just like we now, as a family, make a journey uh, almost every year from Boston back to Nebraska for the holidays. And, and it's kind of fitting, uh, as Christmas is known for its great pilgrimages. The journey of Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem to be 
registered for the census. In Luke 2, the journey of the Magi from the east to worship the newborn king in Matthew 1. And of course, not all pilgrimages happen at Christmas, and not all journeys can be described as a pilgrimage. Technically speaking, a pilgrimage is not just a vacation or a sightseeing tour. It is a pursuit, a quest, a journey driven by the heart's longing for something. As one author puts it, the difference between a tourist and a pilgrim lies in the thing that the heart seeks, the intended destination. And so it's something that we that we seek, that we believe will fill us or enlighten us or satisfy us in some way. That's what a pilgrimage is. And it's a surprisingly common experience uh, among humanity. We've, we've all heard of religious pilgrimages, right? So Muslims will travel to Mecca. Uh, Hindus will travel to the Ganges. Many Christians and Jews will travel to Jerusalem, Uh, mystics will seek out a a guru of some sort for enlightenment. And so we've heard of religious pilgrimages. But there are other destinations that we wouldn't necessarily describe as religious, but when they become the object of our heart's quest, with all of the expectations expectations and longings associated with it, they, they do in fact take on a bit of a religious flavor for the pilgrim. Country music fans seek out the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville. They take their pilgrimage to see where it all happens. Academics set their sights on Harvard or Yale. Families journey to Disney World with all of the hopes and expectations that their dreams will finally come true. They'll find what they're looking for. Those in a health crisis might travel to Boston in search of the most advanced uh, medical care. Lovers dream of a pilgrimage to Paris. The self-indulgent might sneak off to a pilgrimage to Vegas. And each destination becomes a kind of secular temple where we are invited into its worship. We are invited to come find our hope there, to go through the various liturgies, standing in the lines, to make our offerings, paying our fees, in hopes of finding the answers or satisfaction or fulfillment that we came looking for. And the point is that whether we realize it or not, and whether we act on it or not, we are all searching for something. We all have within us, deep inside this, a sense that this daily life, the, the routine, the grind, the, the disappointment, the darkness, our fears, our failures, our frustrations, that, that this can't be all there is to life. There has to be something more than what I spend day in and day out experiencing. There has to be something more. And the answer is out there somewhere If I can just find it, we have this drive. And that stands behind so much of what happens in life. But it's a drive that many eventually realize is ultimately pointing them to God. St. Augustine said of God, 
you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You think of that restlessness which drives so much of what we spend our time and passions pursuing in life and these journeys we might take, both literally and figuratively. There's this restlessness within us. Augustine's telling us that's pointing you somewhere intentional. And you're not going to find what you're looking for until you find it in God. The Apostle Paul says it like this in Acts 17. And he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. We are all on a quest. The question is, where do we find him? Where do we find him? How do we get to him? Is there a special place that we need to go? A kind of temple where we might appear before him? Are there certain requirements that we need to fulfill? Are there quests we must accomplish along the way? Am I supposed to work my way up to God? That's what many believe today, that that finding God is something we must do. It's something we must accomplish. In fact, pretty much every major religion, save Christianity, frames it this way, that, that the great pilgrimage you must take is one in which you make your way up to God. But what if Christmas tells us something different? The real story of Christmas. What if Christmas tells us that we are able to find God not by working our way up to Him, but because He has come down to us? That the pilgrimage that matters is not one we might take, but one that God's eternal Son took 2,000 years ago. That the temple that we seek is not somewhere out there or even up there, But again, to quote Paul, is not far from each one of us. That Jesus is in fact that temple. This is the point that John makes in the beginning of his gospel in chapter 1. That Jesus, because of who he is, the word made flesh, that Jesus is therefore uniquely qualified to make the Father known to every one of us. He is the true temple that we seek. And that's what I want to explore together in this chapter, uh, John 1, verses 1 through 18, as we celebrate the birth of Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's temple language, God dwelling in the midst of his people. And there are four things that I want us to see from John 1, 1 through 8 this morning that show us how Jesus is uniquely qualified to make the Father known to us and what difference that makes for, for us in our search for God. So the first, there are four points. Number one, that Jesus is God. John wants us to see that. Second, that Jesus became human, which means that, number three, Jesus is the true temple. He's what we seek. And therefore, number four, if you want to find God, go to Jesus. 
who came down to us. So those are the four points we'll see in John chapter 1. And we'll start with the first thing there, that Jesus is God. If you didn't notice during the scripture reading a few minutes ago, John is apt to speak in poetic terms. Uh, We looked at the letters of John uh, earlier in the year, and we kind of saw John's a little bit like the Yoda of the apostles. He speaks in these poetic imagery and and what feel like riddles sometimes and so on. Uh, He's a poet at heart. And, and so he doesn't just come out and tell us what he's talking about in verse 1 or who he's talking about. Uh, he doesn't tell us that he's talking about Jesus until verse 17. Instead, he introduces Jesus to us by calling him the Word. The Word. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And people have, you know, debated for many years, what does John mean precisely by calling Jesus the Word, or, or in Greek, the Logos? Uh, but if you look at the Old Testament background for this idea, it becomes pretty clear that, that John's talking about God's own self-disclosure. God's, the way that he makes himself known to his people, it's through his speech. Think of creation. He spoke all of this into being. You think of his salvation, the promises he makes, the way God makes himself known to his people is through his speech, through his word in the Old Testament. And so John introduces Jesus to us as this word. What's remarkable here, though, is that that God's speech, the way God makes himself known, is personified. He's not just talking about an action of God. He's talking about a person who is the word of God, who is the one who reveals God to us. The word was with God and the word was God. He, this person, was in the beginning with God. And this person, John includes in the divine identity. He tells us that this word is God. That Jesus is God. That's his first point in this book. So much of what makes God unique, according to Scripture, is ascribed to the Word here in chapter 1. So the Word is eternal. He was there in the beginning. Before there was a beginning, there was the Word who was with God. He's eternal. That's something that's only true of God in the Bible. But the Word is eternal. He is personal. He's not just a force or an idea. He's a person. And the word is divine. He's not just a God. He is God, God, the God. Jesus is included in God's unique identity. But more than that, the word is involved in God's unique activity. If you look through the Old Testament, there are only two things that God does not, or at least Maybe not only, but there are two very specific things that God does not share with his creation. His work in creation and his throne. You will never see a created being occupying either of those roles. Being there in creation or sitting on God's throne. You will never see a created being included in that divine activity. In the New Testament, Jesus is included in both of those things. 
He sits on the throne of God. And according to John 1, he was there in the beginning at work in God's unique divine work of creation. Verse 3. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. So Jesus, this word, shares God's unique identity as God and participates in God's unique activity as God. Put it all together, John's first point, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He is, this is the mystery of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. That's John's first point. But the second thing he wants us to see is that Jesus became human. Jesus became human. Look ahead to verse 14. And the Word, this Word who was with God and was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John's language here is is pretty stunning if you stop and think about it. It's not just that, that God appeared to flesh or that he appeared like flesh. It says the word became flesh. The eternal son of God who shares his father's identity, who, who was active in creating this world, stepped into that world himself and became part of it. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. That is amazing. The Word became flesh. That is amazing. But that is the consistent testimony of Scripture. When the angel appears to Joseph in Matthew, and he explains to him that that his fiancée Mary was not pregnant from another guy, but that what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The word who was with God and was God became flesh. He didn't cease to be God. He didn't take a break from being God, became human for a while, see what that was like, then goes back to being God. He didn't cease to be God. He wasn't part God, part man, like a demigod of some sort. He was and is, as the old creeds put it, true God and true man. Fully God who takes into himself, takes on full humanity at the very same time. It's the mystery of the incarnation. Colossians 2 verse 9 puts it this way, for in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity, all of the godness of God, dwells bodily in humanity. True God, true human at the very same time. Jesus is God. Jesus became human. And if that's the case, then number three, Jesus is the true temple that we seek as the word made flesh he is uniquely qualified to make the father known if you've been with us the last few weeks 
we have been walking through this idea of God's temple, God's desire to dwell with his people throughout Scripture. We talk about God coming down to be with us every year at Christmas, but that idea is so much bigger than the first couple chapters of the New Testament. It is God's desire to be with his people from the beginning all the way up to the end. And so we've been trying to kind of get a sense of where, how this shows up throughout the scriptures. And we've talked about how the Garden of Eden was that first temple where God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Then we looked at the old temple, the the tabernacle in the wilderness and the building that Solomon constructed and, and, and how God dwelt with his people in a special way where they gathered to worship. And we talked about how Israel forfeited God's presence through their idolatry and sin. Last week, we saw Ezekiel's vision of God's glory leaving the temple. Uh, He no longer dwelt with his people. But the idea of a temple is twofold. It expresses God's desire to dwell with his people. Build me a sanctuary that I might be with them, he said to Israel. So it expresses God's desire to dwell with his people, and it's where people on earth go to meet with the God who is in heaven. That's, it's a pilgrim's destination. This was the destination of ancient Israel's pilgrimage every year. They would go up to Jerusalem to worship God at his holy temple. The Psalms celebrate that pilgrimage. And it's a pilgrimage that all of us, whether we realize it or not, long to take. We long to find what we're looking for, which is God. But if Jesus is God in the flesh, incarnate on earth, then the presence of God among his people is no longer fixed to a building somewhere. Instead, it's fixed to a person, the person, the Son of God. And John wants us to make that connection that Jesus, therefore, he's the true temple that you're looking for. He is how God dwells with his people. He is where you go on earth if you want to meet with the God who is in heaven, that Jesus is this true temple. John wants us to see that connection. And so the way he describes Jesus becoming human is with the imagery of ancient Israel's temple. Look again at verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt there, if you put it a little bit more rigidly, you could translate it, he tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent. He set up his tabernacle. The same thing Israel would do every time they moved. They set up the tabernacle. That's the word John uses to describe Jesus becoming human. It's God's tabernacling presence amid his people. He continues, and we have seen his glory. Remember how when God took up residence in his tabernacle, in his temple. The Old Testament describes it as being filled with the glory of the Lord. And there was this visible glory that came to rest on the temple. Now in Jesus, we see his glory. That's the visible presence of God's glory, the face of Christ. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And it's not just in chapter 1. Several times throughout 
John's gospel, he makes this point that Jesus is the fulfillment of what that building was supposed to be. Jesus is the true temple. In chapter 2, Jesus is standing in the temple court in Jerusalem, and he says to the people there who had kind of turned God's temple into a marketplace, he says to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. He's not talking about the building anymore. When you have God in the flesh, you don't need a building to go meet with God. You have God. Jesus' body was that true temple. As one author puts it, the special revelatory presence of God, formerly contained in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle and the temple, has now burst forth into the world in the form of the incarnate God, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true temple. And so that brings us to the fourth and final point, that if you want to find God on earth, go to Jesus who came down to us. That's what you're looking for. That's who you're looking for. Having a relationship with God is not about completing a series of quests or improving yourself or jumping through a bunch of religious hoops And if it was, we'd all be in trouble because none of our religious hoops would be quite good enough to make up for that sin that separates us from God. It's not about making your way up to God. Relationship with God is possible because he has come down to us. It's the only world religion where that is true, where it's not about making your way up to God. It's about God coming down to you. Do not miss that point, that in your pilgrim pursuit of truth or light or knowledge or fulfillment or healing or whatever it is your heart is longing for, that all of that is ultimately a pursuit of God. Do not miss that the way to know God is not to go to some building somewhere or to go through some religious motion. It's to go to Jesus. That's our pilgrim pursuit, to go to Jesus who came down to us. John 1, 9 through 11 says, The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus came into the world, but that doesn't mean everybody saw him or found him. Even his own people, Israel, who'd been longing and waiting for God to return and to bring his presence to be with them and redeem them because Jesus didn't fit their categories of what they thought it would look like to finally know God and be with God. So many of them missed who he really was. Don't miss Jesus. Because he breaks some of your categories for what fulfillment in life is supposed to look like. As the word made flesh, he is uniquely qualified to make the father known. That's what John 1.18 tells us. That no one has ever seen God. The only God 
who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus has made the Father known to us. And more than that, Jesus himself supplies the grace that we need in order to find and know the Father. Verse 16, And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's possible to have a relationship with God. Not by making your way up to him, but because he has come down to us in Christ. It's possible by grace. By grace. Grace is when God gives us something absolutely wonderful, absolutely incredible, a relationship with him, even though we actually deserve something utterly terrible. His judgment for our sin. That's what we deserve in our pursuit. That's what our pilgrimages uh, have earned us. But because of who Christ is, he's able to give grace to those who seek him. Because Jesus is everything we were supposed to be and failed to be. As true man, as truly human, he's the perfect Adam. He is for us all that we were supposed to be. He accomplishes everything we failed to accomplish before his father. He's our perfect representative. And yet, as true God, he's able to save us from our sins because as a truly human representative, he not only was good enough for his father, he not only perfectly fulfilled that covenant, he also took upon himself the very punishment we deserve for our failure on the cross. So he's true human. He's able to represent us. He's true God. He's able to save us. That's true of no one else. That's true of no one else. And so only Jesus is qualified to make the Father known to pilgrim sinners like you and me. We can know God not by making our way up to him, but because he has come down to us. And by God's grace, we can become his children through faith in Christ. Not all received him, John tells us. But in verse 12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you want to find God, go to Jesus. If you want to find God, Go to Jesus. Trust in Christ who died for our sins and rose again. He has come down to us. And so finding God, whether we realize we're looking for him, worshiping God, it's not about our hard work or effort, your morality, your social conscience, your religious practice. It's no longer about going to Jerusalem or any other holy site, even less some secular temple. It's about going to Jesus. The purpose of pilgrimage is to find Jesus where he is, which happens to be right where we are. He has come down to us. And so trust him by his spirit and enjoy his presence this Christmas. Let's pray. Gracious Father,
Lord, we confess that we spend so much of our life trying to make it up to you for things that we've done, or even just to make it up to others. Lord, we have bought into the idea that happiness in life, satisfaction in life, answers in life are all dependent on what we do for you. And Lord, thank you that that's not true. Because if it was, we'd be in so much trouble. Thank you that you did not leave us in the darkness, groping to find our way up to you, but instead you came down to us to show us who you are and to do what is necessary to save us from our sins that we might be able to enter your presence and spend our lives in your service. We praise you for that. And I pray that your spirit would fill every heart here with that mystery and joy. Thank you for being our Emmanuel. In Jesus' name, amen.